Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ken. And I'm Tessa. In this, our second season of How to Choose, we're exploring the topic of decisions at work. We're joined by a range of guests who speak about decision-making in the context of their work. Now, Ken, have you ever thought about starting a small business? Has anything held you back? Was it the risk or the time or...? Yeah, look, I've probably thought about it a few times um, because I tend to come up with lots of ideas that don't necessarily survive contact with reality. But I think for me, it's the fear of not really knowing enough to make it work. I feel like, oh, the idea is good, but I do understand to make a business work, you need a fair bit of knowledge. There's a there's quite a bit that goes on behind the scenes to make it succeed or, or fail. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, I was reflecting on this myself. And I think part of it, it's obviously time and money, but also embarrassment. So there's a part of me that is nervous about putting something out into the world that I don't think will be received well or high. Even this podcast, I remember when we were launching this, being really nervous about, is it going to sound professional? Yeah. How interesting. Well, I'm glad you didn't tell me that because I would have probably felt very (laughs) nervous too. I hadn't even thought about it. It's exceeded my expectations. Oh, good. Very relieved. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Today, we're talking to a local Canberra entrepreneur who turned his coffee addiction into a flourishing business. Alex Leach is the owner of Bellorophon Coffee, a cold brew coffee company that is on tap and in cans all through Canberra. We'll listen to how Leachy decided to take the plunge. Oh, very nice. Yeah. <laughs> into creating a business and the surprisingly natural and low risk approach he took to his business. He also has some tips for those thinking of going out on their own. Excellent. Let's listen. So Alex Leach is the founder and former owner of Bellorophon Coffee a cold brew coffee line that has gone from a plastic tub in your garage, Alex, to a market stool, now to retail space in Canberra's very hip Dairy Road precinct. It's been canned. It's on tap all throughout Canberra. Um, You do espresso martinis. Let's go back to the very beginning, Leachie. What made you decide to start making your own cold brew? So I was uh, just getting into the specialty coffee scene. It would have been late 2014, early 2015. Uh, I was working for a big prime systems integrator and was looking for something a little bit more, just starting to get into taste and exploring what that meant. Then uh, I was made redundant. And so um, I had a four-month sabbatical. I uh, then took it upon myself to really, um, really try and make something of it. And my palate wasn't yet fully developed. So I was just visiting heaps of coffee shops and, um, so, you know, visiting four or five coffee shops a day, um, taking around little samples of cold brew that I've brewed um, because I really liked cold brew, but there wasn't really a lot of good cold brew and, uh, and then just refining those brews. So over the four month period, I managed to find something that was really great. Uh, one of my mates who was running the cafe. Uh, he asked me to stock it. So that sounds like there was a lot of deliberate intent right from that very beginning. It's not like you were just like, oh, I'm into coffee. I'm going to get a bit more into coffee. It, it sounds like from that time you were like, no, this is something that I'm going to do. I think the the drive was about making something really good. It, it was less about this could be a potential business opportunity. Mm. It was it was like I just want to make the best possible cold brew I can and, and show that it can be actually a really nice product and not the leftover grounds after the end of the day of service and bang it into a pot and then strain it through a chucks. It's like there's, you know, like with everything, the, the more deliberate and the more refined and and the more um, technical you can be about it, the better uh, better the output product. Yeah. Is that something that you do with other parts of your life too? Always, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So this is just, you know, 
your your approach to life is yeah. like if you're going to do something you want it to be really high quality yeah that's okay. right. that makes sense so you're you're making your own homebrew you want it to be excellent yeah. and you've got this time so yeah. you might as well go out and research and make this the best damn homebrew yeah yeah okay so you you've had that time and you feel like you've got got a good product what made you decide to start then selling it so <clears throat> i had this pretty cool deal um where the, the cafe owner would give me ground beans for free i would take it home brew it into cold brew bring it back and then in exchange i would just get unlimited free hot coffees <laughs> and so i was like oh this is a pretty good pretty sweet deal because when you're drinking you know four or five coffees a day um it's uh you know that adds up and and he's getting a product out of it which was you know essentially the cost of the coffee mm -hmm. no labor or or, um, or methodology or intellectual property cost, you know, and um, he didn't want to do it. So then, you know, outsourcing it for essentially free when, you know, the cost of a cup of coffee is relatively cheap. And so, yeah, it was a, a sweet deal. Yeah, kind of a low barrier to entry, isn't it? Super low barrier and no risk either. Yeah. So, you know, I was brewing it in two, um, two $35 Hario Mizudashi cold brew pots. Mm. I already had a V60 pour over with a bunch of filters and mm. I was just pouring them through them and filtering it that way. Yeah. So this is all basically your coffee addiction and funding your coffee addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Are you still on five cups of coffee a day? <clears throat> no, <laughs> no, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. It's, uh, you know, again, I guess you get a bit older and you move into your 30s at, yeah. you know, the, the amount of coffee you drink definitely goes down a bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the next step then i think is you went and started actually selling it at a market stall yeah so so through that exposure um a couple of other cafes then asked hmm. and so then then it scaled up a little bit and then two 1.2 liter jugs wasn't really cutting it hmm. and so i um i then invested um in in an actual um a, a custom brew pot so we use um, stainless steel home brewing equipment and I had a piece of steel fabricated, which uh, represented the first layer of filtering, a custom bottom, custom false bottom. Uh, we went to the States just on a holiday and I picked it up from there mm. and then and then brought it back. Yeah, then started brewing. That, that instantly changed my capacity from 2.4 litres in a 24-hour period to 38 litres wow. in a 24-hour period. So a huge increase in capacity. Um, which then allowed me, and then I had to invest in a, a bunch of different filtering techniques and using search, researching these crazy filters that are used in the beverage and wine industry to filter down. And then it was about suddenly the, it shifted from making the best cold, best cold brew I could to all these other things. How long do I keep it in a container? What coffee do I use at scale? Because you don't use, you know, 50 or $60 retail a kilo coffee yeah. when you're brewing it at scale, which is what I was doing before when I was doing a couple of litres at a time. Yeah. Where do I do it? Suddenly my kitchen's now full of cold brew equipment. Yeah, so it was just a, it just switches very quickly from like just doing something for fun and, and making the best possible thing you can to all these other business things that you have to understand and make decisions on. Yeah, okay. So that sounds like that was really the turning point of like if I'm going to do it, Yep. I'm going to do it as, you know, as yep. a business and this is going to be a really deliberate thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So sole trader and then quickly realised that Canberra is cold a lot of the time um, and a cold beverage, Canberran, Canberrans are very fickle. <laughs> so I realised my sales would be pretty inconsistent across the year too. So I was like, okay, well, I need to do more in the warmer months. 
and I had this brew container that was sitting empty most of the week. So then it was a decision about, well, how do I get both increased revenue, increase net profits by going direct to the public mm. rather than doing wholesale trade through cafes. And that's when the markets happened. Yeah. And at this point, are you writing a business plan? Are you are you kind of just still kind of flying? Yeah. You know, no, I registered a sole trader, paid my $78 or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, did up some artwork in PowerPoint and um, just slapped it on labels and yeah, basically had health come through the, the, the kitchen at home and they were like, yep, it's all low risk, do whatever you want, really. Yeah. And I was like, okay, sweet, this is all pretty easy. And then it was about grinding after yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, it's such a big, I've done markets before just for like stuff that I've made. And it's such a big time impost yeah. as well. And just, you know, getting there each week is a lot of effort. The prep is, yeah. is huge, particularly when you're, when you're brewing just enough for that week. And so the, the lead up, that ramp up to the Friday night when you're packing the car and getting everything ready and then, you know, a 6 a.m. start, get out there, unpack, you know, get the stall, sit on the stall for, you know, five or six hours and mm -hmm. get absolutely slammed. Um, you know, it didn't take long and it was like, you know, lines five, six deep for most of the day and, you know, a, a startup business pulling $1,200 in a market. Um, in the middle of summer is pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. It would have been so exciting. It was crazy. It was yeah. really, really, it was really nice to know that a product that you've basically created from scratch um, and been through all the whole R&D process to, you know, a pretty wild west kind of business while still working full time is, uh, yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah. And you obviously had um, the addition of a very supportive partner to also work for you, I guess, for free. Yeah. At the market stores. Yeah, she did that early on. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, it was very supportive. I mean, the hours were starting to get up there. Yeah. You know, I think it, on top of my full time job, which was 40 hours a week. So that sabbatical ended. I got a new job and um, managed to negotiate four days a week because mm. I thought that I could make a, a crack of it. And so I was doing five days in four. So I was doing 10 hour days. Yeah. And then on the Friday was like, was the delivery day. So I'd run all my deliveries in, doing the market prep. Yeah. And then in the evenings of those, of those um, weekdays, I would be doing brewing. Yeah. That sounds like there's no time for fun. There wasn't. No. Yeah. So I think that that summer of 2016, summer of 2016, 2017, 2018 um, was like 40 hours full time. And then about 40 to 45 in Colborough. That is, that is crazy. I mean, but it kind of also reflects other people I've talked to. You know, if you're going to be successful at something, it's not just talent, it's not just hard work, but there's like kind of like an intense passion that is required too yeah. to actually get over the line because just making a good product isn't enough. You know, just, you know, putting that, you've actually really got to be like committed to that mission, really dedicated. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing about when you try and scale whatever it is, there are big barriers to entry at every scale point. And so I think it must have been at the end of that summer, I realized that my barrier to scale was the brew container because mm. I was brewing, you know, three or four nights a week and realized that was not, that was not sustainable because the investment of my time, you know, we talk about about three to four hours for every brew yeah. um, plus the filtering process and then the bottling, stickering all the bottles, litting them, putting them in containers in the fridge, you know, like all of that, that whole process, doing it in smaller batches was just not making it worthwhile. And so, you know, then you have to scale up to a different brew container. So. Yeah. And is that when you, you decided you couldn't do it out of your garage anymore? 
No, I scaled up to a, a 200 liter brew container. Wow. Um, Wait, what was the other one just for? 38. 30, okay. So we like really exponential growth <laughs> yeah. from like your 2.4 liter yeah. to the, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, a 50 gallon brew container. Mm. Uh, again, stainless steel, same make, just to, that's just the next um, level up. And again, same false bottom. So there's a cold brew company in the States that do, do a whole, whole heap of um, custom fab stuff. So just ordered that. And, you know, during my time, you know, you get to know who's in the industry and, um, and, and what's around and how to, how you're going to scale. And then, yeah, essentially scaled that up and, and realized that that was pretty good. Mm. Expanded the product ranges a bit, started hitting different markets, started hitting like, um, nutrition supplement stores, more cafes. And then, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I remember the transition because we were in Hawaii together in 2018. Yep. And I remember you going to all these coffee shops and tra- tasting their cold brew. And then you kind of mentioned you had this business and, yeah. You know, in my head, it was like, sounded very small scale. And then uh, I went overseas for a while, came back. And then I just remember seeing your product on tap everywhere to the bouldering gym that I went to, yeah. to my local cafe. And I remember taking photos the first few times because yeah. it's so exciting. Yeah. You're like, you, you know, again, that exponential growth. It kind of went from the market stalls, mm. a household, you know, when you, when you notice yeah. it, you, you know, the bike shop, yep. like literally every, all these places I would go to all the time. I was like, you're everywhere, Lichi. Yeah. Oh, I think it's a, it was a bit of a lifestyle thing too, right? Something that's physical fitness. It's it's a great, like like the product generally is a great thing to drink while or during or before you train, whatever it is, but also just like the, the vector into those markets. No one had ever done it on tap before at that scale. So it was a pretty new thing, but also there's a, there's a real advantage to doing it on tap. There's no container mm. to put it in because the containers you use are reusable. Yes, your labor, not yeah. having to bottle and label. Correct. And, yeah. yeah. So, so putting instead of having a 200 mil jar, you're then putting it in a 19 and a half liter keg, mm. and then serving it on tap. And and no one was doing it because it's pretty hard to do if you have to teach yourself. Mm. And I taught myself, but. It was, um, yeah, it's such an easy barrier to entry that way. When you go go in there and you're selling at scale mm. and you're then taking the profits that would otherwise go into consumables. Mm. So that was one of the primary reasons because your your profit your profits are much higher. Yeah. And have you done a business plan at this stage? No, a business plan was in the head. I just knew that needed to grow more um, and, you know, whatever vector that came about mm. was good. And so, um, yeah, more taps, more places, more product, more places is direct scale yeah. thing. So I think business plans are handy if you don't know what you're doing mm. um, when, when there's a lot of unknowns. But because it grew organically and quite slow yeah. and relatively risk-free, I think that's the important thing is that I was still working full-time, therefore I still had my full-time wage. Yeah. The only investments came when it was time to scale up. Yeah. And then the bank account that I'd started for Bellerophon essentially funded that because I wasn't paying myself. I wasn't investing the profits anywhere else but back in the business. Yeah. It grew very nicely organically without much risk. Yeah. And as long as, so I was very risk adverse early on mm. um, in the sense that I didn't do anything that wasn't going to increase profits essentially and, and retain that revenue. So I didn't take money out, didn't spend money on things other than things directly contributing to the cold brew business. Yes. So the biggest risk you've probably taken is the retail space, I imagine, yeah. like signing a lease, committing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was a huge risk. And I think probably one that 
happened a bit too soon. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's actually been, um, you know, constantly $1,500 a month coming out of the bank account is yeah. is a tough thing. Yeah. And so um, in terms of risk mitigating that, that's when we partnered with the alcohol distiller. Mm. So now we're sharing that space and yeah. the, the costs are split, obviously, which is really good. Yeah, that's a really good sort of reflection point too, I think, being mm. like, okay, no, I've gone a little bit too fast. Mm. How can I bring this back? Um, what, you know, what can I change? And yep. that's sharing that risk makes a lot of sense. Now, you've actually decided to divest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a huge decision point after kind of this is your baby. Mm. Um, yeah, can you talk me through that decision? We spoke earlier about passion. Mm. The passion has, I felt like I've done with it what I can. And I almost feel like Bellerophon has taught me all it can yeah. at this point in time. And so, you know, we've, partnered with that distiller, um, that distiller, we do a bunch of collaborative products as well. He needed more space. So sharing that 50, uh, 50 square meters is, uh, is not a lot of space for two fully, fully running businesses. And so he needed more space. I wanted more time back in my life. Mm. The, the return on investment for the, you know, the 10 hours a week I spend in the business now, cause I employ, employ a person to do most of the production markets and deliveries is just not there for me. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of an, a reflective, intuitive thing where you're looking at your own values, aren't you? Mm. So what's important to you at this point in your life? You're not you're not learning anything from the business. You probably don't need it financially. Yeah. Um, so it's like what's important to you. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and I think, you know, because I've always worked full-time throughout the life of the business, my career has gone in a very different direction mm. to running a small hospitality business. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think, you know, at that point it's like, well, should I be spending 10 hours a week on something that is actually going to go nowhere feasibly, yeah. like a, a fun thing to run for someone yeah. um, and certainly enjoyed every every moment of it. Mm. But that 10 hours a week, if I even split that time in half and spend five hours with my wife and five hours doing an extra five hours of work a week, yeah. the ROI on that five hours of work a week and the ROI on the five hours with, with my wife is, you know, exponentially more than what I would spend 10 hours in a business that turns over a hundred grand a year. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's really good advice is that, yeah, you shouldn't just be doing it for the sake of doing it. You really got to be thinking about what am I getting out? What's important to yep. me? Any other plans up your sleeve? No, but there's always something, right? In that constant drive to do fun things and interesting things, there's always, there's always something. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, no firm plans at the moment. Yeah. I think we'll just um, enjoy not having to split my time between work, family, and and a, and a entrepreneurship yep. for a few years, maybe, and um, and we'll see. Mm. Yeah. And what about other um, people out there who have have a side hustle or a hobby that they kind of can you know have a sense that it could grow? Do you have any advice for them? As long as you can justify that risk, I I think you know one thing that I, I probably could have done early on, and I look back on is is going all in. Mm. I think that's the biggest barrier. Um, you know, I kept the job as a safety net, mm. the, the permanent job as a safety net, but I, you know, I wonder if I'd gone all in, you know, how that changes your perception. Mm. Because if you think about, you know, the, the 40 hours a week I was spending in Bellerophon and the 40 hours a week I was spending at work, if I just did 80 hours in Bellerophon, mm. you know, there's something there about that. But yeah, I think if you can do it, 
take a risk, even even if it's just taking some long service leave or, or like I did, you know, when I started a, a bit of a sabbatical yeah. and just give it a little crack and see see if it can work. Make sure you've got a, a pretty concerted plan about where you want to go with it yeah. um, because it's, you know, with entrepreneurship, it's basically all or nothing, right? Yeah. And you probably would have got to the point you are, but just much quicker. Yeah. Not, not that kind of years of slog of, yep. of lots of hours and, mm. and hard work. Um, interesting, my co-host Ken actually took a long service leave and he wrote a book, which is actually why we've started this podcast. So, yep. yeah, I haven't found my, my, my thing that I want to throw myself at, but it's inspiring talking to people like you, Richie. Now, if people want to get in contact or try some of your cold brew, how, how can they do that? You can uh, head on onto Instagram, just um, hit us up through through a DM there. Or uh, if you're local here in Canberra, it's it's spread across a few cafes. Um, but every every weekend you can find us at the Northside Farmers Markets um, at Epic there. So come by, have a chat and uh, have a sip. And I'm sure you get a thrill. I mean, even this morning when we we're having coffee, you saw someone with one of your cans in yep. their hand. It must feel nice to know that you've got, you know, that's yours. It's floating out in the world. Yeah, it's nice to, I think, be able to contribute and reach people that you would otherwise never know or never mm. meet. You know, you see someone sipping a cold brew, walking down the street, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, someone's getting some sort of joy out of that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to my next cold brew already. Thanks very much, Tess. Well, that was really fascinating. The thing I really liked listening to Litchi was that he was clearly driven by a desire to produce great coffee and not just a desire to be financially successful. Um, so it was impressive. And you drew that out in your question to him that excellence is a core value for Litchi and it's something that shapes a lot of the things that he does, which I think if we're honest, like a lot of the people we talk to in this series show the same value of excellence, that it's a really strong driver. And I think it's critical to being successful, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. So both that value of excellence, but also that kind of hard work as well. Yeah. That passion for the topic allows you and motivates you to do, do all of that hard work. Absolutely. And that was another thing that really stood out. I mean, he he had tremendous success. He was very innovative, but he worked really hard. Mm. He was working two jobs and he was also willing to learn from his mistakes as he went along. So I thought it, it sounded to me like he was someone who was very reflective. Mm. Uh, you know, he took that time to think, what do I need to do? What's required? And we saw that in terms of the growth of the business. It wasn't just a linear growth that he just gradually got bigger and bigger vats to put his coffee into, but that he understood there was step changes needed at different points. So I found that fascinating in terms of growing a business. Yeah. And it felt just so natural. The the idea of the decisions being almost just the pressure would build up. So the demand for his uh, product would drive his decision to then go out and invest and get more equipment. It wasn't necessarily that he's like, oh, I'm just going to suddenly brew an extra 200 litres and I'll find customers. The yeah. customers were already there. So that pressure drove a lot of his decision making. And I think that's that's a fascinating thing because in growing the business, you could be uh, fooled into thinking these decisions are really just about when I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to put in a bit more time or a bit more money. But actually, uh, it's very much reflecting on the environment in which you're working. So understanding that things are changing and so now might be the time. So I think there's, a, there's an element of just being able to correctly understand the environment you're working in and, and how things change. And it's funny, I kept 
trying to get him to tell me about his planning and his deliberate process. And he's like, no, I still didn't do a business plan. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, it's not, it's not coming. Yeah. He's, he, he's never sort of done that sitting down. I want to make X profit by this date. Like, like you said, he wasn't motivated by the money. He was motivated by the passion and the, the interest in the project. Yeah. Um, and I think that leads nicely into something I know we've talked a bit about before. And that is that, you know, you can pick and stick. You can make a decision that's kind of a one decision and it sets you on a path. And every step after that is mapped out for you. But the alternative is that kind of hedge pruning approach, isn't it? Where you you start in a in a certain direction, but then you have to be nimble and agile and adjust as you go along as things change. Yeah, I would recommend people going back and listening to those two episodes in season one, the tree felling and the hedge pruning, because I think they do the, the different decisions lend themselves to these different approaches. You know, if you want to be a surgeon, you've got to fell a tree, you've got to commit yeah. to that path. Whereas something like a business like this. The hedge pruning and sort of natural evolution suits it so much better because it means, you know, at the beginning, he, he didn't realize that putting um, cold brew on tap was going to be a great way to actually cut out all of that processing and extra effort. You know, so something like that, if, if, if at the beginning you thought you were going to be a canning business, you wouldn't necessarily be flexible to go and actually take it where it needed to go. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's because when you're innovating like this, you are trailblazing, you're cutting your own path through the jungle. So you don't quite know what you're going to hit along the way, do you? I mean, no one's been down that path before. So I think it demands that element of flexibility. Another thing that really came out for me was this idea of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. And it just became so clear to me that he was intrinsically motivated, that he was guided by his passion, you know, his own desire to be excellent at something and to learn everything he could about it. He wasn't guided by making money or that kind of external approval. And how important it is to do in any any job is to have find that intrinsic motivation for what you're doing. That's right. And that value of excellence, that intrinsic driver, then uh, rewarded him. Mm, That's very true. Uh, And it's interesting because I think different people have different levels of motivation on this. They might be really intrinsically motivated in some areas. For instance, it might be in their day-to-day job or they might not be, you know, they might be just doing that to gain money and not care very much. But in their hobbies, that's where their intrinsic motivation is. Yeah. Um, I also thought too, he had a good moment of self-reflection where he described that he knew that it was time to stop. And I like the fact that in this case, it was not the business that was driving Leachy, but Leachy was in control. Like he was in the driver's seat throughout the, the process because it's easy for things to get away from us a bit in terms of work. We get uh, lured or seduced in by the opportunities to grow and to be more and more successful. And before we know it, sort of things have taken on a life of their own. Yeah. And that goes back to episode eight, should I stay or should I go? Yeah. And really that the idea of not deciding is still a decision. So if he had just kept on going through the motions, that's actually deciding not to spend that extra time with his family or in yeah. his job. So the fact that he stopped and had that moment of reflection and said, no, actually what's more important to me right now is putting those extra hours towards these other things that are really important to me. That's right. And every choice comes with a price tag. Every opportunity that we grab inevitably comes at the cost of other opportunities. Mm, yeah. We can't have everything. You can't have your cake and eat it too. For sure. Opportunity cost is everywhere. Yeah. And then another thing that jumped in is his point that he kind of regretted not going all in earlier, that he, you know, if he had have invested more at the beginning, he would have missed some of that uh, hard slog. And it reminds me a bit like you writing your book, Ken. You know, yeah. if you had have done that on the weekends, you'd probably still be writing it now. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, would have been quite despondent. I think that's right. There's a sort of critical level of commitment that's required to generate the momentum, I think, isn't it, to get something finished? So, mm. Yeah. And I do wonder though as well, because he, he did actually regret going 
you know, that sort of big investment of the shop front at the end. So I wonder if there is a bit of hindsight bias in his reflection there. Hindsight bias is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's that tendency to look back and think, oh, it's so obvious yeah. what I should have done. Mm. And when it comes to decision making, I think that's a, that's a real trap we can fall into. We can say, well, look, it was really clear. I should have done this and should have done that. But in fact, um, at the time, it wasn't so obvious. We didn't have all the information to make the decision quite so clear. Mm. And that there's inevitably um, an element of risk there because of that uncertainty. So we're weighing, constantly weighing risks against a reward. Mm. If I do this and it works, yeah, it's going to be great. But if I do it and it doesn't work, well, there's a, a cost that I've, I've put into this. So. Mm. And I do want to just warn listeners out there that we're not advocating for you to quit your day job and go, <laughs> go all in on whatever, whatever side hustle you're thinking yeah. about. Follow your dreams, everyone. <laughs> no, no, no. We are not responsible for <laughs> any future loss of income. No, that's right. Uh, but I think there are some good lessons here about, you know, like you said, managing that risk and be, making really informed decisions. Absolutely. So what are your big takeaways then out of all of these things we've talked about? What are the things that will stick with you? I think for me, the biggest one is really that, you know, following your interests and your passions. That, yeah. You know, again, if you're intrinsically motivated by what you're doing, everything else will come so much more easily. And I think even this podcast is a great idea, yeah. you know, a great example, sorry, of of that, that we have, there is very little extrinsic motivation. We're not getting paid. We're <laughs> yeah, that's right. In case you were wondering, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we still are both so excited by this project yeah. uh, and motivated and we wouldn't be doing this after work and on the weekends if we didn't really, really care and were passionate about it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. I think for me, the thing that I also took out of this was his value of excellence that we've talked about just now. It, it always impresses me to hear someone who wants to do things really well and then does the hard work to to produce that excellent outcome. And I know that it's easy sometimes for me to get excited and do something and then abandon and do something else. But yeah, I think for us to really get those longer term rewards, it requires that level of commitment, doesn't it? Definitely. Okay, Tessa. Well, that was fascinating. Can you tell us who are we talking to next week? So next week, we have a very exciting guest. She is a Australian politician and businesswoman who has recently been elected as an independent for the seat of Wentworth. It's Allegra Spender. For all our international listeners, just a little bit of context. Uh, Allegra is one of the Teal candidates who was elected at our last election, who joined a wave of independents, so they weren't affiliated with either major party. Uh, so she has some really interesting perspectives on politics and policy. So a very exciting interview. Excellent. Well, that will be fascinating. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast. And please tell your friends about us too. We'd love to meet them. Bye for now. 